Hi, everyone. Welcome to Request for Explanation number six. Today, we've got me, Carol Nichols. Me, Manish Gurigalkar. And me, Alex Creighton. And today, we're talking about ERFC 2033, Experimentally Add Coroutines to Rust. So, Alex, as our special guest, how about you start by introducing yourself? Sure, thanks. So my name is Alex. I've been with the Rust project for about four years now. I'm a member of the core team, and I work a lot on the standard library, various integration points here and there. And uh, more recently, I've been trying to work on a lot of the futures-related things, so kind of Tokyo, the futures crate, culminating in this RFC for adding coroutines to the language. So first of all, what is an experimental RFC, an ERFC? That is an excellent question. So the general idea, the general theme that we've had in the past is a lot of times we want to have these kind of massive language features, kind of these really, really big changes to the language. But it's often very difficult to kind of have a comprehensive, fully thought out, fully designed RFC up front. A lot of this kind of needs experimentation in the compiler itself. There's kind of no way to kind of grok all of the bells and whistles and features and how they all interact until we're actually literally playing with it and have, kind of working with it on the nightly compiler in kind of various ways and shapes and forms. But on the other side, language features such as this, such as adding coroutines or kind of other s similar ideas, they're so large that we don't want to just take any patch to the compiler. We don't want to just kind of put it in the compiler ad hocly because it has very large ramifications on the design of the compiler itself. So we're faced with this problem of we don't really want to just casually add coroutines to the compiler because it's such a big design decision and maintenance burden of the compiler. But at the same time, we can't even add coroutines until we've agreed on the design, kind of what it would actually look like in the compiler. So the thought of this experimental RFC is to kind of say that uh, this is not a fully thought out feature. This is extremely unstable. There's going to be a future RFC that will actually stabilize this. But the, the whole point is to kind of get high level alignment from the community around the idea of coroutines, just kind of the high level concept, but not so much the nitty gritty like the APIs, the precise syntax, kind of these details that are very, very important at the end, but not necessarily important from an implementation perspective. So the idea is here is to kind of open a pathway for these large features to get implementation in the compiler, and then make sure that we're not going to just immediately try and rip that out, but everyone's kind of roughly aligned around that. Get lots and lots of experience, get lots of feedback, lots of bug reports, figure out everything in the compiler. And then at the end, once we have all this information to actually write a full and concise and kind of well-defined RFC, do it at that time, and then we go through the normal stabilization process. So what does this RFC agree to do? Currently, this RFC is primarily just doing essentially what it says on the tin, just adding coroutines to the language. So the, the detailed design section is actually very thin on this one, where it's just kind of a very hand-weighty, we will add coroutines, and here's a general idea of how they might look. So most of this RFC is actually the motivation, kind of spelling out what the need is for coroutines and why would we even do this. So concretely, all that's going to happen with this is we're going to have coroutines in some way, shape, and form. Not, just, not defined by this RFC, so very flexible to change in the compiler or in the implementation. So that's pretty much it. OK, so what exactly is a coroutine, this thing you're experimenting with adding? Another excellent question. So this is a uh, hotly contested topic as well, where you might call it coroutines, you might call it generators, you might call it resumable functions. It's a lot of different names for something. But the general idea is that you have a, bo a body of code, kind of like a, a function and you can suspend it at any point in the function, and you can resume it at that suspension point. 
So a lot of times, uh, this is very similar to coroutines and generators and other style languages, but it's kind of more explicit with yields in a sense. But eh, let's take a step back. So eh, what you might have is a function body or a closure with some yield statements inside of it. So you execute some code, and then you'll hit a yield, where all of a sudden that, the control flow for that function actually returns. So it returns back up to the caller or whoever called that function. And then later on down the road, you can resume execution of that function at that point. So the whole idea is that you can have this function where over a period of time it might be suspended at various locations, so you might be doing some I.O., you might be waiting for the next element of an iterator, but it's kind of capturing up all the state in a very nice and concise fashion syntactically. So the main idea of a generator is to kind of, or a, a coroutine, I'm, I'm probably going to use the, uh, the term generator and coroutine inter interchangeably here. But a coroutine is essentially it's kind of a much, much nicer way to write a, what you would otherwise write as a state machine by hand. So this actually feels more like a very generalized way of writing iterators and things using syntax similar to closures. Is that true? Yeah, that's definitely correct. So the, uh, with closures, whenever you call a closure a second time, you're always resuming at the top of the function, so you're kind of always starting at the, start, at the start of the closure, whereas generators and coroutines, you're, you might be starting in the middle depending on where it was in, at, uh, like during the execution. But otherwise, the, the main motivating use case that we had for adding coroutines was actually async and await, kind of features async I/O related. But a, Previous IRCs have actually explored this as well, and another major use case for generators is exactly iterators, where right now you have to kind of maintain the state of the iterators. So if you have a, uh, a slice iterator, you have to maintain the start and the endpoint, or maybe a counter in the middle. But with a generator, it allows you to much more nicely kind of not even write out what the state is. You just write the for loop, and you call yield a couple times to actually yield it. So it's kind of a really nice and concise way of writing those iterators. Or kind of, and there's other applications for generators and coroutines, but those are kind of the, the two big ones that have been focused on so far, is the iterator aspect and the async I.O. aspect. Okay, so that's a good point. Is, can you define async and await? Because yes. that's what this RFC is kind of proposing adding in, in a certain way, right? Very much so. So async and await is kind of, those kind of t tend to come as a pair, and it's kind of you typically refer to it as async slash await. You'll see in many, many other languages. This is uh, JavaScript recently gained support for it in ES 2017, I think, or something like that. Uh, C Sharp has had this for a very long time. Python has uh, added this in version 3 and above, or at least 3.6, I think, at that point. But it's, in general, a way to... Um, write your code as if it were blocking, kind of it looks like blocking style, but it's actually the async style. So this is very similar to kind of goroutines, that, that model of concurrency where you write a bunch of code that looks synchronous, but under the hood it's actually totally asynchronous and doing a lot of multiplexing at the user space layer and kind of ends up being much, much more efficient as you don't have to spawn a thread for each of these. So it kind of boils down to async and await is essentially synchronous code with some extra annotations, but then with an extra power in the sense that it's all running asynchronously, so you can do crazy things like uh, selecting over a database request and a timeout, or selecting over an HTTP RPC and a database request. So you, like, async in a way kind of empowers you to do so much more inside of it, but it looks very similar, and it should, in theory, be just as easy to write as that synchronous code. You mentioned um, blocking code and non-blocking code. For those of us in the audience who have not written code like that, could you like explain what you mean by blocking code and non-blocking code? 
An excellent question. So uh, a lot of this kind of boils down to I.O. at the fundamental layer. So for example, let's say you're opening a TCP stream. Like you're making an HTTP request and you connect to rustling.org port 443. You need to write an HTTP request onto that, and then you need to wait for the response to get in there and then read that out. So typically, kind of by default, what operating systems do is they call blocking I.O. So when you write your request onto that socket, it'll just sit, your thread will sit there and wait until all that data has been written out. And then when you try and read from that socket, it'll sit there and wait until there's actually data on the socket to be read. Now, asynchronous is very different, where instead of immediately blocking your thread, the kernel will just tell you, nope, I'm not ready at this time. So you'll try and read some data, and it's going to say, nope, there's no data here. you got to come back later. And then so it's up to you to then figure out how to come back later and then come back and, and start working with that. And so that's the, this idea of asynchronous, where you kind of schedule a read operation. And it'll just finish at some point in the future, but you're not really quite sure when. But in the meantime, you can go do some other stuff. You can schedule other reads. You can schedule other writes. But the idea is that uh, your code will either pause at that moment in time, which is blocking I.O., or it will return immediately saying that you can go do some other stuff in the meantime, and that's asynchronous I.O. On that note, we have a lot of like terminology in this space. Like you already said, coroutines and generators are the same thing. But then you also have async which is the async um, attribute that you're introducing in this RFC, but you also have async IO, you have the crates Neo and Tokyo, and it's not in futures, and it's not exactly clear what's doing what and how these all fit together, and which of these are the same thing and which of these are not. Could you go into that for a bit? That is a very good question, and you're not the only one to be suffering from this problem, because I, I also suffer from this. I get more mixed up from time to time. But so, in some sense, the kind of async world of working in asynchronous I.O., working with features, working with these various operations, it actually is relatively inherently complicated, where there's a lot of different layers, and there's a lot of different stuff going on. And so this is typically where a lot of languages or frameworks come with very heavyweight runtimes behind, behind these features. So what we're trying to do in Rust is kind of more of a uh, abstract layering, kind of very thin layers to build up just these precise crates for these precise pieces of functionality. So the idea here is it, we have a lot of things right now, and we still don't have, we, we need to work a lot on this in terms of unifying them to give a nice coherent picture to, to end users. But in the meantime, it's kind of, you might not necessarily need every single piece all at once. You might only need some layers at a time. So working from the bottom of the stack up, uh, asynchronous I.O. is kind of just a term for general things where your I.O. operations are not blocking. So this is where I was saying the kernel will immediately tell you this is not ready, and then it's up to you to figure out what to do after that. Now, it turns out that's actually really difficult to figure out what to do after that. But even just to start off with, just asking the kernel to do asynchronous I.O. is very difficult in terms of uh, portability and platform uh, compatibility concerns. So the idea here is Mio is actually the first layer of all this. Mio is a very, very low-level library, which is essentially the thinnest layer over asynchronous I.O. That spans all platforms. So Mio has an implementation on uh, Linux, an implementation for OS X, for Windows, even for Fuchsia, and I think there's also, uh, I've heard of a Redux one in the works. But so the idea is it's kind of just the bare bones cross-platform abstraction. So primarily what Mio is doing is giving you what ePoll looks like on Linux. I don't really go too much into the details of that, but it's kind of just a fancy way of working with the kernel, but giving it to you in a cross-platform way where you don't have to worry about all these CFGs and all these platforms after that. So then moving up the stack, we, have, we start seeing Tokyo and futures. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go on a separate, separate tangent for a little bit with futures, and, which is not necessarily tied to I.O. 
So the features crate is the foundation for kind of general asynchronous programming in Rust. Not necessarily asynchronous I.O., but also other asynchronous things, like uh, my other CPU is performing a computation and it's going to complete asynchronously with respect to me. And so features is kind of a general abstract crate, which isn't dealing with Neo, not dealing with I.O., not dealing with OS's, none of that. But the concept, the major concept there is exactly a future and then also embodied in streams, which are kind of uh, sequences of values over time, and also syncs, which I don't get into a whole lot here. But a future is kind of a, uh, you'll see this in a lot of different languages, where a future is essentially an object that is a sentinel for some other value that's going to be produced in the future. So for example, if you uh, make an RPC, you'll get a feature of the response of that RPC. So it says uh, you want to count how many rows are in a database, so you have a feature of an integer. If you make an HTTP request, you'll get a future of an HTTP response for once it actually finally comes in. So this is kind of a very general concept of working with values that will become available at a later date. But this, in turn, is the foundation for all asynchronous programming in Rust. That's kind of at least that's what we've been going towards. So we have Mio, which is kind of this cross-platform abstraction of working with I.O. And we have Futures, which is kind of the concept of values becoming available at a later date, kind of general abstract asynchronous programming. So this is when we start moving into the Tokyo world, where Tokyo Core, at the base of the Tokyo layer, is the first thing that fuses Futures and Mio. So what Tokyo Core is essentially doing is basically giving you Mio, but where it looks like Futures. So Tokyo Core is itself is not exactly the largest crate in the world. It's actually quite small. But the idea is that uh, it's not giving you kind of raw Mio interfaces, which can be very uh, difficult to work with and kind of juggling correctly. But rather, it's giving you to in a very Futures-style interface, which in theory is much more amenable and much more easy to work with. And so from there, you can start moving on, moving up on up the stack to get a bunch of the other Tokyo crates, kind of various protocols put on top of there. You can actually get a func like a the Tokyo curl crate literally has a feature of a function to map a request to a feature of a response, that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of where the asynchronous I/O, the features, the Tokyo, the Mio all come from. And the last thing you're talking about is async and await. And so this is this comes up where if you're writing your application with entirely features, it actually becomes kind of unwieldy, where features were primarily designed and kind of thought up to solve the callback hell problem of JavaScript, where you're attaching all these callbacks all over the place. So features did a great job of that, but they're still not as nice as synchronous code. So what async and await is doing is allowing you to very, very easily define a future that looks almost exactly like synchronous code. So that's kind of a lot of that in a nutshell, but were there other, were there other particular pieces that I didn't quite cover there? Because I know there's a lot. Yeah, that, that's a lot there. <laughs> but I, I, that helped me a lot. Um, I think I have a better idea of how all these pieces fit together now. Um, so kind of on a meta level, the, the beginning of this RFC says uh, this RFC is intended to be relatively lightweight and bike shed free. Was it? God, no. Not at all. Not even close. <laughs> this was... So, so what, kind of, what kinds of discussions came up, and how, how did that change the RFC along the process? Right. So a lot of this was kind of discussing coroutines at a high level. Actually, well, I'm going to take a step back from that. So the first thing this pulled back out of the closet was the discussion of one-to-one -one versus M-to-M, -M, green threading versus native threading. All that came back up. So that was kind of... 
not really what we intended to do, but kind of starting to rediscuss a lot of these priorities and kind of go over a lot of this again. But another uh, primary thing, primary alternative that this brought up was coroutines in a kind of more green threading style sense as opposed to the resumable generator style sense the RFC was proposing. So this is what uh, lib green was for those of you who are around with Rust in 2013, who I assume no one was. So uh, what LibGreen did was essentially the Go style concurrency, where you don't write anything down, but you're actually creating coroutines all the time. So you can just suspend a function at any one point in time, and it's kind of defined by the runtime whenever you do a blocking call. It just doesn't actually block. And But the, the, the main def definition of this was sort of a stack full coroutine versus the stack less coroutines that are proposed by this RFC. So this is actually one that, that was a distinction I didn't quite get into, but it's kind of the idea that a stack full with libgreen that we used to have, you have to allocate this big stack ahead of time to kind of swap in and out. It's kind of the shared state of where you were is that stack, just a big chunk of allocation. Whereas a stack less coroutine is much, much, much more, more lightweight. There's no allocation. It's kind of a precisely how large it needs to be. And that's what this RFC is proposing. So a lot of that was kind of discussed to kind of figure out which one do we want to start pursuing? Because in a sense, this RFC was a little broader than just adding coroutines to the compiler. It was also kind of, how do we want to attack this goal for Rust in 2017? This Rust should be equipped for, for writing robust and high-scale servers. So it was a lot of debate about that, and kind of how, which direction we want to go in, and kind of how, what precisely the best way is. And uh, there was some discussion about kind of the precise syntax generators and all that, but we tried to mostly steer away from that in terms of that didn't necessarily have too much effect on the RFC itself. So I think overall, the RFC didn't change it a whole lot from the discussion, but it was kind of a lot of uh, messaging to kind of say that all of these are valid ways to pursue this goal in Rust, and this kind of rep but this RFC represents sort of one way of moving forward to try and uh, make progress towards this goal. And so the, the consensus was kind of eventually settling on this is not immediately stable. This will definitely be unstable for a future RFC to d decide at a later date. But this is probably one of the highest value opportunities for making progress on this uh, on this 20 roadmap goal of 2017. I love that you have the exact wording of the roadmap goal memorized. <laughs> that's, that's actually because I'm looking at it right here on my screen. I okay. would definitely not have okay. it memorized. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so this RFC did eventually get merged, um, and it was you know merged to be like, okay, yes, we do want to do this experimentation. So how's it going? Another good question. So the, the kind of the initial motivation for actually writing this RFC was that the experimentation already existed. Uh, a contributor in the community, Zoxy, actually had this entirely implemented on a branch before he even wrote one line of this RFC, and that was fantastic. So uh, basically what ended up happening was after this was merged, we just took that branch and made a pull request to the, to, the, to the compiler. And so that's been going through a lot of review. It hasn't quite merged yet, but it's, it should be getting pretty close to merging at this point. And we should uh, start seeing, hopefully, coroutines on nightly pretty soon. Um, so how can people try it out? That's a, a, a difficult, it's a good question with a bad answer. So right now, uh, the, 
the only way to test this out is to actually clone Zoxy's branch of Rust and then build Rust yourself. And most things that start off with go build Rust yourself is not a great way to get started. So my, my best recommendation for how to, how to try this out would be to wait for this to land on Nightly. That in theory should happen in the next two or three weeks. And then you should just pull it in off of Nightly and start playing with it locally and kind of, there should be some uh, at least short documentation in the compiler for how to use generators. But then also if you want to primarily use this in terms of async and await, sort of that nice way to write a feature without actually writing a bunch of combinators and state machines, then uh, there's actually a feature, there's a repository called Futures Await in, uh, under my user on GitHub. And that one uh, should be updated to the current version of this RFC. And as soon as that lands in Nightly, you should start being able to use uh, async and await syntax on, on the Nightly channel with Rust. That's kind of a procedure macro to do everything, to do everything for you. And so if people want to help move this forward, is there any way people can help with this? Would testing it out help once it's on Nightly? Very um, much so. So kind of the whole purpose of this experimental RFC and going through this process was to get something on the Nightly compiler where everyone is testing it, everyone's getting a lot of experience, we're getting lots of feedback, lots of bug reports. So that's what exactly what we want, is for everyone to use it out. So as soon as this is on Nightly, I would highly recommend, if you're interested, to start playing around with the coroutines feature on the, on the Nightly channel. So just write some iterators as, as coroutines, kind of develop those libraries, and kind of see how the ergonomics play out, see how the syntax plays. Is it a kind of a nice feature to use? But also, if you're curious specifically for async and await, then I would highly encourage you to uh, try out the Futures Await plugin. And so this is, uh, there should be some documentation in the readme for how to use it. And it'll definitely be nightly only for, for quite some time. But any bug reports to help flesh out uh, missing use cases there, kind of uh, performance pitfalls or bugs in the generator implementation, all that would be very, very much appreciated. And so in theory, it's just wait a couple weeks, wait a week or so, wait for this to land on nightly. And then you can just start going hog wild with async and await with coroutines as generators kind of, or iterators, whatever you feel like. Awesome. That's pretty much all I have. I'm excited to try this out. Manish, do you have any closing thoughts, questions? Uh, no, this sounds awesome. I've wanted zero cost, uh, easy to write state machines for a while now. So it's great to see features you love from other languages becoming built into Rust in a very organic way that sort of makes sense within Rust instead of just being tacked on. I agree. One thing that really surprised me about this is that uh, Kind of, if you have asynchronous I/O today, you're kind of not considered a legitimate async runtime until you have async and await. This is kind of a essentially required feature for us to get the foot in the door of any company or maintain because I mean, async and await ends up being so much more maintainable over time. It was just fascinating to see how 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 quickly this is required to have kind of a nice experience when writing with features in async I/O. The weird thing is, I feel like. Rust was, at least at 1.0, the Rust community and the core team did not really feel like this was a space we were really targeting, except people from this space started prop cropping up and saying that we want to use Rust. And they were like, oh, no, now we need to fix things. Um, that was actually, and that was kind of more of a time crunch leading up to 1.0, where we we ended up deciding like a couple months before 1.0 that the, the libgreen native split was not going to work out, so we ended up removing libgreen and kind of honing the standard library for non-async I.O. But that wasn't necessarily, we didn't intend for that to be a statement of we do not want async I.O. 
but rather we don't have the bandwidth right now to think this through. And so a lot of the work over the past couple of years has been, now we do have the bandwidth and we have a lot of users who would exactly like this. So let's start funneling some resources towards this. So kind of seeing that story evolve as we've uh, put more resources on it and started to develop it over time. No, that wasn't exactly what I meant. I meant that like we weren't exactly focusing on the web space. We considered ourselves, at least the way I perceived the community back then, was that we considered ourselves a systems language. And like systems are low level and just doing operating system stuff. Well, not operating system, but low level stuff. And web stuff was not really considered something that Rust was for at the time. And it's a use case that sort of organically grew out of people from that space wanting it which was interesting to watch. Yeah, this I think is uh, kind of one of the best embodiments of kind of how we've articulated Rust's vision over the past couple of years of where Rust has been a stable language, where it's been very, very much historically built as a stable, solid systems language. But we've kind of uh, growing beyond that to saying Rust is, even if you're not interested in systems, then Rust is still a very, very highly desirable language for you, at least from my opinion. And uh, a lot of that is kind of from the productivity aspect, kind of the, the, the fearlessness where you can be so much more productive, you can do so many more things in Rust that's just so difficult to do in other languages. So tacking on concurrency, uh, pulling in libraries from all over the place, having a large code base that's actually maintainable over years at a time. These kinds of things are uh, tend to be very difficult to find all in one package in, uh, in different languages. And Rust kind of very easily and well embodies that. So this kind of move towards, oh, maybe we're not just systems. Maybe we're also kind of easy web services or kind of fast web services, that kind of style thing. I see that evolve over time. has been really fun and interesting to watch. I mean, isn't everything really a system? <laughs> Everything runs on a so, CPU, and I'm, that's a system to me. Yeah, yeah. I think everything's a system, so Rust is good for everything. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the show. This is really awesome, and I'm excited to see how the experiments go. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And a reminder to everyone that if you have an RFC you'd like us to talk about, uh, file an issue on our repo at request-for-explanation slash podcasts on GitHub.